0: Welcome to another episode of the Good People Fund's podcast, which is appropriately called Good People Talk. Today's episode, we are sitting with Max Levitt, who is a beneficiary grantee of the Good People Fund. He has a fabulous organization called Leveling the Playing Field, which in very basic terms, we'll let Max fill in the holes as we go along here, but it collects used or slightly used sports equipment and supplies it to communities and organizations that couldn't otherwise afford it and allow them to have robust sports programs. Max, thank you for sitting with us. Thanks for having me. Thank you. I've heard you speak a couple times and this is a sports-related organization. You're a sports-passionate person. Tell us how it all started.
1: It probably started unbeknownst to me as a young kid. You know, my, my parents are always telling me stories about how, as a as a toddler, even before I could walk, I was gravitor gravitating towards any sports item in my house, right? So I think a lot of kids play with rattles or musical instruments. For me, it was like, where can I find the nearest ball and can I throw it? That was what I did as a kid. So it really started as a young person just being incredibly passionate about sports. And, and I just remember as I grew up and, and saw other people around me find passions, whether it was you know politics or law or history or basically the topics you learn in school, I always wondered to myself, You know, is there something out there that's going to make me feel the same way that sports does? And and there never was. So uh, when I went to Syracuse University and started my undergraduate, I remember going through this little booklet of all the majors at Syracuse and coming across something called sport management. I was pretty much sold once I saw the word sport. I was (laughs) like, you can major in something that has to do with sports. This is unbelievable. So I majored in sport management and began uh, working as an equipment manager for the Syracuse University football program, and I tell the story about my first day on the job, walking into this 25,000 square foot space which was our equipment room in the athletic building being in awe at the quantity and the quality of sports equipment that was laid out before me right so shelves completely full from from floor to ceiling of brand new cleats and football helmets and wide receivers gloves and lacrosse gear and you know as a sports nut there's no other analogy than to say it was like a kid walking into a candy store I just started going into each aisle and picking through things. And what was mind boggling was this is, this is beginning of August. And the first thing our boss says to us, like my first task as an equipment manager in this new job, I was so excited about was, okay, you see all this amazing equipment on the shelf. Box it up. We're taking it to the dumpster to throw away. Really, which was like being overtaken with a, a sense of total shock at that directive. What I learned was that all the collegiate athletic programs countrywide have have negotiated a contract with their manufacturing partner. The manufacturers look at it as a marketing expen- expense. So if you're Syracuse and you're know, the football program, it's not a tough decision to throw this stuff away because you're about to replenish it with the newest model a week later. So the job was. Nike is sending us all of this football equipment for the, the next season. It's coming at the end of the week. We ought to make sure that the locker room is clean, the equipment shed at the practice field is clean, and the equipment room is clean mm-hmm. so that the, the, the shelves can be stocked. And when the athletes get here, we're off and running without a you know wasted second. And so we were taking boxes of footballs and gloves and cleats, all these items. And- it was all last season's equipment. All last season's equipment, quite frankly, minimal difference from the new model, but the contract did stipulate that you were not to use previous year equipment. Sometimes it was as simple as the Syracuse S logo was black, last year and they changed it to orange so that they knew the difference. Right. But they're you know, the, fo- the 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 size and look of a football hasn't changed ever. So it was not any noticeable difference beyond the the color of the logo. Mm-hmm. That's how silly it was. I didn't realize that at the time, but I realized this as I went through college and, and took some some business classes and began majoring in entrepreneurship. As a kid I always had a passion for pushing the envelope a little bit, much to my parents' chagrin, always trying to find a way around, you know, loopholes. I was always always wanted to find loopholes to to get my way, or if I didn't agree with, with the way something was being done, I always found a way to, to do it the way I felt it should have been done, whether it upset someone or not. So that same kind of personality trait that I didn't realize was an entrepreneurial trait, I just thought I was a poorly behaved child. <laughs> but I really questioned that that was what we were doing, throwing away equipment at that Quantity and the quality that it was still in was something that didn't sit well with me, and I couldn't stop thinking about it and couldn't stop thinking about the fact that there must be a better way of doing this. And I would come home over my summers when I, you know, football season would end. We'd come home for the summer, and I would work, you know, I worked in, in for the Washington Redskins for a summer, I worked for the Bowie Bay Sox, which is a double A minor league baseball team for a summer. And I spent a lot of time, time working in youth sports, and I would always gravitate towards the equipment because of this frustration I had with what we were doing on the college level. And I noticed the same thing. So all the way up to the professional leagues, it's the same thing as the college. It's free equipment and they would throw it away. Um, down to the, you know, elementary, middle school kids playing sports, it wasn't that they were throwing equipment away, it was, stuff was sitting in, in garages or equipment sheds collecting dust. I spent a summer working for the Maryland Senior Olympics, prepping for the opening ceremonies. And I, we're in the Montgomery County Recreation Storage Building and we're getting all the materials ready. And I noticed, you know, in the corner, this huge 500 square foot space full of baseball equipment—thousands of bats, catchers' gear, helmets, baseballs, etc.—and I go over there and start pulling bats off the shelf. They're, they're by the thousands; they are unopened. These are brand new baseball bats, but they look—they look like baseball bats I haven't seen in a decade. And I'm noticing warranty cards in these bats for 1999. Mm. And I'm thinking, gosh, these are tho- you know thousands of baseball bats that have been sitting here for. I think at that point it was 10 years, I think this was 2009, and I began really realizing that just the vast amount of sports equipment, it wasn't, you know, I, I learned this lesson through college, but when I started thinking, oh my God, from elementary school kids up to college and professional athletes, there is this mammoth sporting goods industry that has an inefficiency on the secondary market, There's, there must be some incredible opportunity here, and that is when I began the process of researching what to do and really stumbled across this, you know, this is kind of where my Jewish upbringing came into play, which is the fact that tikkun olam, volunteerism, philanthropy has been woven into my being since I was a little kid. Whether I liked it or not as a kid, we were volunteering, making food for the homeless, donating everything we had in the home to a a variety of charities. That was just a part of who I was. And so I had this, I think this is the first time I realized it, but I had this kind of innate Awareness of those who did not have what I had. And that awareness came into play when I began thinking about what is the what is the opportunity with this waste of sports equipment. And I thought to myself, you know, I spend so much time in, in the inner cities and low-income areas, and I don't remember there being, you know, much athletics going on. I don't see these kids playing sports. The fields aren't full of kids on the weekends like they are in suburbia where I grew up. But I couldn't remember donating my sports equipment anywhere. In fact, when I started thinking about it, I thought You know, my sports equipment is still in the garage at home and my family didn't waste anything. Everything was donated to a charity, but the sports equipment sat and I began digging into this issue. And, you know, lo and behold, I discovered this rapid decline in youth sports participation going on in in low income communities. Once I realized that the price of sporting goods was playing a prominent role in that decline, that's when the passion began.
0: I saw a study that I think you posted, a 2014 study from the University of Florida, which really underscores the point that you're making. Mm-hmm. If I have the figures correctly, said that sports participation rates for children among families earning more than $100,000 a year is 33%, whereas mm-hmm. those families earning Below $25,000, that figure is only 15%. So clearly that's empirical evidence of everything that you're saying yeah. here, that there is that disparity and that there is that inequality. Huge. It is. It's disturbing.
1: Yeah. And it's, it's um you know, for me as someone who would not be the person I am today without sports, I... I Truly don't know what I would have done with my time as a kid if it wasn't for athletics. There was not much else that I wanted to spend my time on. I have gobs of friends today that I met through sports. I we learn about work ethic and overcoming adversity, and quite frankly, oftentimes where I come across bumps in the road, I, I go immediately to a sports analogy or a specific sports story that gives me some inspiration or motivation to, to overcome that issue. I needed youth sports far less than a low-income kid needs youth sports. You know, I had two parents at home. I went to a, a good school, a good community that led me in the right direction. And Whether it was sports or not, I probably would have learned valuable skills of, of how to be a professional, um, successful person in life when you go into these low-income communities, these kids are born into situations. And I, w- and I will say a lot of people, unfortunately, when I ask them, like, why, what do you think the main cause of poverty is? And you got like drugs or dropping out of school or pregnancy. And it's not that. It's birth, right? I mean, most people are people are in poverty because they're born into it, and it is incredibly difficult to get out of poverty. If you're not born into poverty, you can never understand it, I think. But for, for a kid who's born into a situation where oftentimes they don't have two parents at home, they are not being told that you need to, you know, stay in school that you know, after school, they end up leaving the school and their parents aren't home and they're on the street. And it's just the value of those kids having a youth sports activity to go to after school is so much more important than it was for me. Mm-hmm. And the fact that those kids are specifically losing out on that opportunity because of income inequality and what's happening in the youth sports sector, it's a real shame. Because those kids need it so much more than the kids who are fortunate enough to play it.
0: It is a connector in individual familial and community lives, Mm -hmm. and it carries values and lessons that rarely anything else does. Your mission, and you as a professional and as an individual, you have evolved from the point that you were identifying excess, slightly used sports equipment that is going to waste and shouldn't, to being an advocate, not only for that, but for the place of youth leagues and sports teams, etc. Uh, do you feel do you feel like that you've elevated to that advocacy
1: role as well? Completely. One of the greatest gifts I've gotten from this journey has been the ability to gain an intimate understanding of what it's like to grow up in poverty in this country. Something that I was never, you know, I, I volunteered a lot as a kid, but I never developed a, you know, you'd go to the, the the soup kitchen or you'd make food for the homeless and you'd drop it off. And, you know, I don't think, I don't think I had the, the, the mental ability at that young age to really dive deep into some of these issues by talking to some of the homeless people we would serve. And and the greatest gift I've had at this job is is developing legitimate relationships with people who are in these communities, whether they're in poverty themselves or they're community leaders trying to help families get out of these situations. It's been the greatest gift of my life to, to, to have had this major issue exposed to, my, to me. And, it, and it's obviously become a huge And it's not just the youth sports issue that I'm passionate about and advocate about. It's it's the awareness of income inequality and how just, just how difficult it is for families born in poverty in this country to get it out of to get out of that situation. The the lack of opportunity, it's just it's so difficult. And I and I I oftentimes think about myself and what where would I be if I was born into poverty and not into privilege. Take me for example, I've been successful, I went to a good college, I've stayed out of trouble my entire life. But I look back and it's you know, I, I had tutors, right? Math was like my worst subject. I just couldn't do it. I needed I needed a weekly tutor to get through math in high school. And, you know, I, I had a speech pathologist as a kid. I, I I think about what if I was born in that situation and didn't have a tutor to help myself in math. And I wasn't a great I wasn't great at, at English either. There was a lot of subjects I work, I wasn't great at, but I, I had the the resources around me to help improve. And I just think that if I wasn't born in that situation, I didn't have Parents who pushed me to, to do the extra work I needed to do, and and parents who, and you know, I didn't have parents who would pay for these tutors to come to my home and, and help me learn math. And there's nothing I'm more passionate about than getting not just the youth sports issue, it's the issue of opportunity in in, in impoverished areas and how little awareness there is sometimes. It can be a frustrating thing because I think you can't not everyone's gonna not everyone wants to wants to know about it or cares to know about it, but I do think it's vitally important that we try to shine as much light on that as possible, because there's still this lack of awareness about about these things, and people assume the worst about folks in poverty, and it's just not true.
0: Right. So your role has really morphed over the last five or six years.
1: In the last couple of years, I found myself more policy engaged in speaking. You know, I used to just speak about sports when I would go and speak to groups, and now I am still speaking out about sports, but I am using this larger income inequality framework to not just talk about sports but talk about you know tutoring opportunities or maybe you don't like sports maybe you're you do art after school, right? And there's a lot of great after-school art programs out there in low-income communities that need funding and support and volunteers. And, you know, you don't have to be passionate about sports to help low-income kids gain access to opportunities, right? If we had more volunteer tutors out there, it would be a, a big thing. So I, I, I've now looked at my role as more of a general awareness builder as opposed to just on the youth sports issue because not everyone's going to resonate with the youth sports message. Okay. So I, I'd be doing it a disservice by not expanding it out.
0: I want to throw one... Astounding statistic out on the table. And that is, and correct me if I'm wrong, leveling the playing field is six years old. Mm-hmm. Okay. And in that time, approximately $4.1 million worth of sporting equipment.
1: I think we're over four and a half now, probably. Over
0: four and a half mm-hmm. million dollars worth has been donated to over a thousand organizations that just didn't have it before this came along. Yeah. And think about all the lives that has touched—not just the kids playing, but the families that have been impacted as well. Mm -hmm. It's exponential.
1: Yeah, it's been—and it's been a been like an "if you build it, they will come" type of thing, right? I mean, we—you know—took us some time to to get the word out, but but at this point, that number is—it's not something that um, we're—we do a lot of outreach. I mean, we certainly do a lot of outreach and try to you know push the awareness. But it's one of those things where it's clear to me now how desperately this was needed. And once it was built and and presented to the community, the floodgates have opened, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we have over 25 new programs that have never applied for sports equipment from us apply every month. And so it, thousands a lot. And you'd think there'd be like, we kind of will eventually hit, hit a hit a wall with it in our community. But the number of programs that reach out to us every month, just ecstatic and and still like boggled by the fact that there's a what there's a 4,000 square foot warehouse space full of sporting equipment that I can have access to for free Mm. on a regular basis as often as I want like that that can't be real and so it's it's been very much of if you build it they will come because it's the need I think has been there for an incredibly long time on a lot of on many occasions more occasions than you would believe we will have athletic directors come into our warehouse PE teachers from elementary middle schools who've been working in the same community, maybe not the same school but the same community for a decade plus and have told us that look I've been doing this for that long and we've I've only been able to offer my kids like three sports. I've never been able to teach my kids baseball, never been able to teach my kids lacrosse. We've never gotten our girls involved in any sports, you know, volleyball, field hockey, lacrosse, softball. My kids have never learned golf or picked up a hockey stick and I've been doing this for 10 plus years. And the only reason, and I know I can teach it. I know the sport. We have the field or we have the gym. Like, I can do it. It's just we don't have the equipment. And where am I going to get ten, twenty thousand dollars 20000 to purchase baseball equipment so I can teach my kids this sport that I know and I love and I'd love my kids to learn it? And within an hour at our warehouse, that's like 10-plus year struggle is over. Um, it's just like crazy to me how simple of a solution. I think that's, that goes back to the question of, of explaining it to people and, and this hump you have to get over is it is very simple, it's not complicated for people to grasp that sports equipment's expensive. Mm. Low-income communities don't have a lot of money. Okay, I can understand how baseball, lacrosse, and some of these other sports are, are not accessible and how access to equipment would change that almost overnight. So it's, it's crazy how, how large of a barrier it was, but also how, how simple of a barrier it was to kind of get rid of. I mean, when I first learned about the issue, my response was, this is so stupid. Like wh- these these programs aren't offering sports at an accessible and affordable rate because the equipment isn't isn't there and it's too expensive. Like that just doesn't make sense. There's garages all over suburbia full of this stuff that no one's using. Private schools buy this stuff every year and throw away the like it was just it was like maddening at at, at first. And
0: that begs the question, where is all this equipment coming from that's being donated yeah. to you? From, I would assume from individuals who are just cleaning out the attic, right, right. to educational institutions like the ones that you described earlier. Yeah, and, and it, it is
1: predominantly individual donors. So oh. about 90 95% of the equipment comes from individuals. We, we invest very heavily in our collection programs. So we are going out to as many sports leagues tournaments school events neighborhood events very like grassroots local type of stuff people just pull up with SUVs full of stuff trash bags full of gear in the back of their SUVs thanking me on their knees for helping them clean out their garage <laughs> and finally my kid's been gone for five years and I've never known what to do with their equipment I don't want to just throw it away like I'm so happy to know it's going to a good cause um it's it's again like the flood like the floodgates have opened on the supply side as well people are incredibly enthusiastic about cleaning out their homes and knowing that it's going towards a good cause. Now, and we certainly have when I mean, we have private schools who clean out their equipment sheds, their PE rooms and call us and we go pick up from them. Okay. Uh manufacturing companies, Under Armour is right in our community. They they give us a ton of stuff. Um, surplus. Yeah, okay. products that they create either either like a defect in the processing so they can't send it out to their stores could be like it literally could be a drop of water on a pallet and they just, the qual- it doesn't pass quality control. It could be, there, there was one we had, we got a ton of sports bras recently from Under Armour because the back strapping of the sports bra was a patent infringement and they got sued and so they gave us all of them. <laughs> so it's a variety of reasons. It's amazing when we get it because these these low-income kids, when they get brand new Under Armour stuff, I mean, you should see their faces. They're like, it's like Christmas all over again, they, they are they're ecstatic about it. Um, our original business plan was to source our equipment exclusively from colleges because I had had this experience in college. I knew that the universities were being inefficient with their equipment because they had no reason to be efficient, based on the fact that it was free and it was being replenished every year. So there was not this emotional connection to throwing stuff away, right? If I got stuff for free every year, I wouldn't be as worried about tossing it. So my my, my I figured, okay, I'll go to there's a ton of great universities in the dc area you got georgetown george mason gw maryland uva virginia tech i mean we could get more equipment than we would possibly need from these universities and these huge athletic programs and what i didn't think about was you're a 22 year old you made your own website on imac and you've done nothing and so when i reached out to these colleges it was no after no after no after no and so through the realization of of the fact that okay we need to build credibility we need to kind of take a step back take this down to like a grassroots level and let's build up some track record, maybe raise some money for a better website. And then we'll, we'll revisit this model of the colleges. Like that's still the model. And so we basically put, we bought 12 like plastic bins from target, uh, basically all the money we had at the time. And we just, and by, when I say we, I mean me, but the organization, we, we reached out to you know, churches and synagogues in my community that I knew, my old high school, the JCC where I grew up playing basketball, um, a couple of the community centers where I played hockey, You know, placed bins on a very grassroots level, again, in these community centers type of places. What was incredible was how quickly these bins filled up. And not just how quickly these bins filled up, but how many phone calls and emails you would get from folks within that community who were ecstatic to hear about us, a, wanted to know how long we had been around, and then B, wanted to know how to, you know how do we get involved. How, my kid is in love with sports. He needs 70 volunteer hours to graduate. He's got a bar mitzvah project. My daughter has a Girl Scout troop, and they need to do a volunteer project this month. And th- these types of phone calls began happening a couple times a week, then every day, and then in floods of you know phone calls and emails every day, right? And it just organically began building upon itself, and quite frankly, we got so busy so quickly... That we never had the time or the need to go back to the university model mm. because the, the level of support and growth from just the engagement in, on the youth sports level with, with these communities, with these sports leagues and putting bins at schools and churches and synagogues and, and stuff like that was so eye-opening mm. and so rapid, we never, had to, we never had to go back to the previous idea. We figured, okay, we're going we'll, we're, we're to have more than enough equipment, mm. not to mention we'll be able to spread awareness of our mission. By engaging all these people, and you start getting individual donations, monetary donations from people. You started getting local businesses. You know, hey, my my daughter's lacrosse league did a collection drive with you guys. You know, my company does a monthly denim Friday fundraiser where the attorneys pay 10 bucks a month and they get to wear jeans on Fridays, and we pick a different charity. And we started getting stuff like that and built on itself. And you're concentrated right now,
0: your core activity is in the mid Atlantic region. Yeah, D.C., Virginia, Maryland. Do you see the model expanding elsewhere, along not only the East Coast but uh, elsewhere in the country?
1: I've always told people that my aspiration is never was never to run a local nonprofit. I always wanted to start a national organization. I would always ambitiously tell people that I want leveling the playing field to be as synonymous with donating sports equipment as toys for tots is with donating toys. So the goal is to grow nationally. Nothing has deterred me from believing that'll happen. So we, we know we've we've proved this concept in the DC area. We we know we have a really strong playbook. We've learned what to do and what not to do. We know the org structure, we know the budget, how much it takes to run one of these things. Size of the I mean every, all the way down to the database and the details of, of all, how all that works. We we've proven the model and last year we opened up our second chapter in Baltimore which we did out of necessity because the demand coming from Baltimore City was growing drastically. It was becoming almost 40, like a little bit under 40% of our distribution was going up into the Baltimore City area. The level of poverty in Baltimore is pretty extreme. So we did it out of necessity, but in the larger strategic plan, we always felt that once we had the proof of concept we need it to prove that it can be replicated in another model with similar success before we really try to do this aggressively on a national level. So it was a very serendipitous thing that at the same time that we were ready to do this, this test replication, the necessity of Baltimore came up at the, the exact same time.
0: There is a business aspect to being a social entrepreneur that goes way beyond the vision. It's a business. You there's there's a not much it, difference. But you either have these. a mind for it or you don't. You clearly seem to have that yeah second instinct for this you know if you were sitting down with a young social entrepreneur some visionary who saw a need and wanted to address it, what would you say to him or her?
1: I mean along, along the lines of that question I, I think it's funny we've been we've been interviewing for uh, a director the, the new we're hiring a new director for our DC chapter and we've been asking our, our candidates you know what do nonprofits do well and then what do they not do well? Some of the, the, my answer to what do they not do well would be that people who run nonprofits need to realize that it's a business and run it more like a business because if you run it like a business you'll be you at in the at the end of the day you will be able to make a much deeper impact. And I see a lot of and this is what I would tell a young social entrepreneur is there are a lot of people who are so passionate and focused on the 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 social activist the social equity issue that they're that they're trying to tackle and they forget that it's A business, right? It's it's, yes, of course. It's a very unique business because your your goal isn't to make a profit. Your goal is to push your mission as far as possible and impact and touch as many people as you can. But you have to you have to run a really strong business in order to to accomplish that. And and it seems so obvious, but I've seen I've seen people who've been at this for twenty years in the nonprofit world and have just kind of been. At the same, doing the same thing over and over again, right? They haven't grown a whole lot. It's been a good business, and they could do it forever, but it hasn't grown in terms of impact a whole lot because they don't see it as a business. We have so much equipment. We there are certain areas in the warehouse that we are always running out of space. We have too many golf clubs. We have too many ice hockey pieces of ice hockey equipment. Baseball bats are always overflowing. And so we started thinking, what if we just developed a social enterprise e-commerce business to sell off some of our surplus equipment? and raise money for the organization that way, which would allow us to rely less on writing grants. Ever since we've done it, we've seen our impact also grow, r- right along with it. And, and we've and we been able to expand into into other areas much more aggressively. And as we start looking for national expansion, I think it's going to be the key to, to bringing funders in. Who's buying that surplus? Equipment? It's just online. It's like eBay. I mean, it goes all over the country. Um, oh, so if I was looking for a baseball bat or a glove for... Um my
0: non-existent son, right. then I could go on and buy it from you guys.
1: Yeah, so we're, we're going to be developing... We actually just hired someone two weeks ago to, to run that part of the business full-time.
0: Or daughter, I know. Or daughter, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, there you go. <laughs> uh, and, and so she is going to be developing like our own... It's We're calling it Gear for Good. And so she's going to be developing our own like Gear for Good website. Because ever since we started doing it, it's great. A lot of the people who donate equipment to us have said, oh my God, I would love to buy my kid his... You know, I'll buy my kid used cleats if I know it's going towards a good cause. Like, how can I buy stuff from you guys? And we're like, well, just go to eBay. But if we had our own site to send people to, it would be pretty amazing. Because um, people want to support us in that way as well. And I, and I truly believe that that business, business strategy, because that is a business strategy, is going to, make a, it's going to allow us to grow our impact into new markets all across the country. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I do think more nonprofits need to think along those lines. Because mm. it, it will in the long run lead to deeper impact. I would love to hear some aha observation that
0: you've made or exposure with a kid or a family, where everything that we're talking about this hour matters Yeah, um, and where it comes to life. What lives in your mind when you need to visualize why this is all worth
1: The, the main one I think about was very early on in the organization, we went out to a baseball league in Inner City, D.C., and we had. This was, I think, at the time we had just moved from my parents' basement to a vacant dance studio that was donated to us at the time. <laughs> and we had like we had gotten together. There were like fifty kids in this league. It was like a new now. They're it's amazing now. They're like a multi a like couple hundred person league with our help. But at the time they're like a fifty person league. Really struggling league because of the the cost that they were taking on to run it and i remember we we filled up we got 50 big bat bags from the nationals that they donated to us and we filled up each bag with like two bats a helmet a glove like all this all the stuff you would need for for uh for a season of baseball and we took them out to this opening day at this league and laid them out and each of the kids got to come and get their bat bag and all their equipment right it was an amazing thing and i just remember this one You'd think it would be the kid that would pull on my emotions. It was actually a parent who came over and she was just overwhelmed with gratitude, emotional about what we were giving her child. But this was the first time that I had thought of and realized how stressful it must be for a parent to have to tell their kid they can't play a sport. What parent would want to tell their kid that they can't participate in an activity activity that is going to be so valuable, so fun, so positive to their life? To have to tell your kid, like, I'm sorry you can't play baseball with your friends because we don't have the money to get you the equipment and pay the registration fee has got to be such a stressful thing for a parent. And and just to see the alleviation of that stress, the relief she had knowing, like, my kid is going to have his own glove at home with a couple baseballs, a bag, and he's going to be able to go to and from practice with this bat bag of his own, the emotion and gratitude she felt. Has always stuck with me. I never thought about how stressful it must be to be a parent and say no to your kid. the 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 relief that these parents feel, knowing that their kid can now have an after school sports program to go to, and they don't have to worry, it's it's an incredible thing.
0: Yeah, and it's also a matter of their dignity as a parent.
1: Right. right. Yeah, it's 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 got to be depressing to to. I mean, there's probably way beyond sports of some of the you know whether it's paying the heating bill or putting food on the table. The stress it must be to be a parent, knowing that. You're unable to give your kid what they deserve and what other kids are being given by their parents. It's got to be just such a, such a, I can't even imagine the the level of stress that must be.
0: Max, it is a real pleasure to sit with you for the last however long it's been. I know how long it's been. Well, (laughs) it's, uh, I could talk to you much longer, but I'm really touched and I think everybody who's listening to this will be as well by your by what you're doing and the impact that you're having. Thank you.
1: Well, thanks for having me and and letting us spread this this awareness and this mission even further. We'll speak again. Absolutely. Thanks.